Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transient events. I'm Will Saunders. I, too, am a second-year PhD student, but at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets, and at present, I'm studying Mars. And I'm Milena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study all types of planets and minor planets. You're listening to episode 13, My Chemical Astromance. What? What, what is that? I don't get the joke. <laughs> my Chemical Romance? My Chemical Astromance? What is My Chemical Romance? <laughs> it's a band? I'm really glad we're recording what? right now so that everybody listening can hear that Will doesn't know what My Chemical Romance is. Apparently Will oh. never went to middle school. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it? Just tell me. It's like a, a really angsty punk. Yeah, it's like pretty punk. I listen to it at the gym sometimes. It's like <laughs> oh when gosh. I think of like stereotypical emo music. Like when I was really angsty in middle school, I was oh in My gosh. Chemical Romance. My angsty cousins are really <laughs> So, <laughs> you're listening to episode 13, <laughs> My Chemical Astromance. Today we'll be jumping into three astrobites concerning the chemical composition of moons, planets, and massive dust bunnies. I have a soft spot in my heart for astrochemistry because I've done a project related to it, and I'm sure the same is true for you planet people. Is that right? You're assuming we have done a project? <laughs> <laughs> About astrochemistry. Astrochemistry is now intrinsically linked to uh, exoplanet science, is it not? That's very true. Um, I don't study exoplanets, so I'm not exactly that avenue. I mean, there's, there's definitely chemistry in my research, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it astrochemistry. What about you, Melina? Uh, well, so for me, chemistry was actually my favorite subject in high school. I loved chemistry. I still love wow. chemistry. It makes me so happy to just see like molecule names. <laughs> it's so sad because I never even Ew. get to see them anymore. But so I got started <laughs> actually looking at the atmosphere of Titan for my first astro research project. And cool. so um, I did a little bit of astrochemistry, but it it was just like looking at one specific molecular line so it wasn't like hardcore astrochemistry titan's got some great chemistry because yeah. I, we'll talk about this a little later on but there's photochemistry there's all sorts of weird reactions there's funky stuff in the atmosphere it's it's a really cool place for that yeah titan is so fascinating if i were to study atmospheres then titan would definitely be like at the very top of my list i knew once i got you playing at people talking about chemistry <laughs> <laughs> you get all excited about it I pretend like I don't like chemistry, I know. but deep down, deep down, I like chemistry. <laughs> it's a safe space, Will. <laughs> so, Alex, since you have done some work on this, since you have done what you actually call like astrochemistry <laughs> research, um, could you tell us how this is actually conducted and how we actually learn about the chemistry of things in space? Yeah, so astronomers have a few in situ observations from objects in the solar system. And in situ just means that the data is taken at the source directly. But most objects we study are so far away that we have to rely on spectroscopy to give us our chemical information. In spectroscopy, we split light 
from an object into small wavelength bins and observe an excess or deficit in light in each bin from the presence of specific atoms and molecules as they interact with the photons. And now, before we introduce any of the astrobytes, we should also remind everyone of something that is like a very field-specific idea, uh, which is that when astronomers say the word metal, they mean literally everything except for hydrogen and helium. And so if you ask a chemist what a metal is, they would probably have a different definition from an astronomer. I'm not actually sure what an astrochemist would say. It probably depends on who they're talking to. Mm. Uh, but th that's just something good to keep in mind, because if you take a look at these papers and they say metals, it might not be what you think. Right. It's usually referring to Metallica, but occasionally could refer to Iron Maiden. <laughs> oh, so you know some bands, huh? <laughs> I yeah. actually like Metallica. Very selective. Learning a lot about your music taste, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start off by talking about the dust bunnies and their chemistry. Astronomers have lots of different names for dust bunnies. Molecular clouds, stellar nurseries, supernova ejecta, planetary nebulae... It seems like time for me to jump in with a dust fact, but I am all out, so we'll have to do without You're one. all out. Wow. Well, yep. a fun dust fact is that planets are in many cases made of dust. <laughs> nice. It's very fun. That is fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess I guess everything could be a dust bunny, technically, if you think about it. Sorry, I'm going to have to come up with creepier ones. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about some dust bunnies that are important to stellar evolution. Specifically, I want to talk about starless and prestellar cores. And each of these is basically a clump of dust and gas. So starless cores are dust and gas that are not necessarily gravitationally bound. And I looked this up because if they're not gravitationally bound, what the heck are they bound by? Turns out they're bound more by external pressure than the uh, gravitational interaction of the cloud itself. And prestellar cores, that nomenclature just refers to dust and gas that's gravitationally bound, but hasn't yet collapsed into a star. When you say starless, it reminds me of the Sneetches from Dr. Seuss. They would say, <laughs> uh, we're, the, we're the best kind of Sneetches on the beaches, and they had stars upon theirs. I remember that line. You know the Sneetches. Wow. You bet I do. That I know all the stories in that book. I know the pale green pants. I know uh, 23 Daves. <laughs> I got the North Going Zacks. Those are my favorite stories. <laughs> Every time my siblings graduated, my dad gave each of them a copy of Oh, the Places You'll Go. So that's the You one have a lot of like, siblings, too. I do have a lot of siblings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we loved the Sneetches. And in, in, uh, growing up, we would always uh, choose that for a bedtime story at night if we had uh, an option. I've never heard of the Sneetches. Like, if you miss middle school, maybe I just missed elementary school. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. Now I'm nervous. What am I going to have missed? <laughs> there are so many good Dr. Seuss books. I mean, the Sneetches is a rather obscure one, but go read it. I'm sure it's online. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they may not have stars upon theirs, but for astrochemistry, starless cores <laughs> are an incredibly important population. So I'm going to be talking about the astrobite comms in cores. Complex Chemistry in Dense Cores in the Taurus Star-Forming Region by Charles Law. And that's based on a paper by Sibeli and Shirley from 2020. Now, Sibeli and Shirley used the ARO 12-meter telescope on Kitt Peak to search for molecular lines of 31 different starless and prestellar cores within the nearest star-forming region to us. It's a large molecular cloud that's only 145 parsecs away, which is pretty close. It contains 
hundreds of newly formed stars and prestellar cores. And stars and prestellar cores are relatively simple astrophysical objects. So they have relatively shallow temperature gradients, and they don't have any strong shocks in them, which makes them ideal for studies of stellar evolution and chemical evolution in these kind of very, very simple environments. So this survey specifically looked for spectral line emission from two complex chemicals, and those are methanol and, I kid you not, ethanol. <laughs> okay? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess if they're very similar, it makes sense they'd be in the same study. I don't know. Yeah, so we're going to have to uh, really be distinct on our pronunciations here, okay? Okay, <laughs> right. got it. So this is... It sounds like alcohols, and I'm actually, I don't remember what AL is, aldehydes or something, Um, but it's a lot of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, right? So is this somehow related to life? Yeah, so these are complex organic molecules, or COMs, and those are molecules with at least one carbon atom. Ethanol, with the A, is created in the body when we break down drinking alcohol and is a leading contributor to hangovers, and is also the most abundant carcinogen in tobacco smoke. Whereas methanol, with an O, is one of the most abundant molecules out there in the universe at large, and it's an alcohol, as you said, Melina. It's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Methanol gets us drunk. Methanol makes us feel bad about it the next day. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I should probably make the distinction. Methanol is an alcohol, but it's a poisonous one, and it's not like the kind we drink. What's the one we drink? Ethanol. Do you remember? Mm. Oh, right, right, right. Ethanol, methanol, ethanol. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually looked this up for a fun fact about methanol, and this is not a fun fact at all, but I learned (laughs) that in the 1920s, during the Prohibition era, the federal government had horrible difficulty with people stealing and selling industrial alcohol in mass quantities and making it drinkable. So the government, under Calvin Coolidge, began adding significant quantities of methanol, as well as other chemicals, to the mix in order to deter criminals, and instead ended up killing thousands of people. Oh my gosh. Potentially as many as 10,000 people died from this federal program. Wow. That's terrible. Isn't that crazy? That's terrifying. So these chemicals kill us, but why would they be a signature of life elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, paradoxical, isn't it? So, comms are prebiotic molecules. So, they're more complex than just a carbon atom hanging around in space, but chemically less sophisticated than you and I. And it's thought that they form in the interstellar medium and then somehow are inherited by a forming planet. Now, for the study that I'm talking about, there are two main driving questions. One is that the leading theory is that these comms form on icy dust particles in space and are locked away until a protostar heats that dust, breaks them apart, and chemistry gets kicked into high gear. Now the problem with this theory is that it's at odds with observations of comms in pre-stellar clouds. If there's no stars, then where did the comms come from? How did they form? Because there's no central heating mechanism. And in addition, we just don't know the breakdown of comms in pre-stellar clouds at present. We don't really know which comms are most likely to be there, and in what abundances. What kind of cores did they look at in this study? So they looked at, uh, as we said before, pre-stellar and starless cores. Right. But they chose the pre-stellar and starless cores from a previous study for ammonia. These are cores 
that contain ammonia and cover a wide range in a cloud's morphological and chemical evolution. And then they also threw out a couple that they thought might have contained the star. Right. Okay, so what did they end up finding then? Did they see the comms they were looking for? So the authors found methanol in every core they surveyed, 100%, and they found methanol in 70%. So they found that the abundances of methanol increased with regions at earlier stages in their evolution. And they define earlier stages in their evolution as having no protostars nearby and being less gravitationally bound. Now, the point I want to make is that this is the exact opposite of what the leading theory suggests. If they're locked away in ice, then you would expect that protostars uh, being nearby in later stages of their evolution would have more methanol. So this is kind of the opposite of what you'd think. So the protostars, as they evolve, would, would heat up and unlock the methanol in the ice. That's what was thought. And that's not what they found. And that's not what we see. All right. So then naturally there must be three theories as to why <laughs> this is the case. <laughs> so in this case, the authors give just one theory for why that's the case. The authors argue that it's due to chemical differentiation that you see these different abundances. And differentiation just means chemicals are separated out in different spots throughout the cloud over the span of its lifetime. So, Do you mean diffusion? It's similar to diffusion. I, I looked into this because chemical differentiation just means the elements get separated into different spots. But there are lots of reasons why you could have chemical differentiation. And in this case, it seems like there's something called non-thermal desorption at work, potentially. I had to look through other papers to find this, so this is not the author's words at this point. But non-thermal desorption is the process by which chemicals get kicked off of the dust grains by photons without actually heating them up and breaking them apart. So it's thought that non-thermal desorption is breaking up the dust, the methanol is differentiating out and out of the beam that we observe it in. And so in later stages of its life, we actually observe less methanol. So that desorption is happening towards the center of the cloud, and so everything is sort of differentiating outwards? Yeah, so it's right. So it's thought that the dust grains, which are a little bit heavier, settle toward the center of the cloud, whereas when the individual molecules break free from the dust, then they're free to bounce around in the gaseous phase and can move to the very outskirts of this cloud. Because they have enough energy. Because they have enough energy, too. Exactly. Okay, cool. And there's one more thing that I wanted to mention in this paper, which I thought was interesting, and that's that they identified a weak correlation between methanol and ethanol, but further studies should focus on exactly how they're connected and also how they're both inherited by protoplanet. Cool. (laughs) So probably like proto-moons and everything else too, right? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of proto-moons, it's time for our... Bi-weekly space noise cosmic <laughs> sonification for, for science. science. <laughs> this segment always feels a little like show and tell to me. So, Will, why don't you show the class what you brought today? Okay, teacher. just here so 
You said speaking of proto-moons, which made me guess that it was going to be like some sort of sonification of the formation of the Earth's moon or something, but I, I thought I heard like someone speaking or something. Is yeah, this like be, the moon landing? To be clear, it's not a vacuum, right? That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's excluded from our guesses. It's got to have to do with the moon, right? I did also hear voices. It's got to be something related to like Apollo. A, an Apollo mission. Okay, the, the, the proto-moon was just a lazy transition. It's got oh, nothing dang. to do with this. Is it from an Apollo mission? <laughs> Is it what? From an Apollo mission? No. Hmm. People were talking. That's true. And it was so staticky. It had to be from like a very long time ago. <laughs> Some sort of mission from maybe like the 80s, I would guess. What did we do back then? <laughs> what did anybody do in the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ready for the answer? Yeah, yeah, it is. This is ambient noise on the International Space Station. Uh. This was recorded by Commander Chris Hadfield about seven years ago. And so, yes, you can hear some talking, but the major feature is just how loud the ambient noise is. And uh, there are people who have put together on YouTube a mix of this, like 10 hours of this sort of soothing static to sleep to. I don't find it that soothing, but (laughs) it is kind of cool. Wait, so how do they get accustomed to that? Do they have to wear earplugs or anything? That's pretty loud. I, I guess you just get used to it. Huh. Wow, that's crazy. So you're yeah. just shouting all the time if you're there. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Um, we I will post the link to this on SoundCloud, and listeners should go trace it down and see what they can learn. Hmm. Cool. cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. All right. So Alex was talking about the inheritance of protoplanets and protomoons, um, and I'll be advancing the timeline a little bit. Uh, to after inheritance. So my astrobite is about chemistry on one of Jupiter's largest moons, Europa. So Jupiter has four Galilean moons that were observed by Galileo in the early 1600s, and so they were named after him. And they can be really clearly seen just from the Earth. So if you have a telescope, if you can go to a public telescope night, uh, it's a really cool target to see, especially in the summertime. And these Galilean moons were the first objects found to orbit a planet other than the Earth, and Europa is the smallest of the four. So the astrobite that I'll be talking about is by Ishan Mishra, and it's called Table Salt, Detected on Europa, and it's about a paper by Trumbo, Brown, and Hand 2020. And it's really about exactly what you would expect. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's salt on Europa. So the title really beat me to that punchline. But (laughs) Is this what it means to be scooped? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. I I feel very scooped. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually reading a book about salt right now. And it's a really cool compound. But I'm only like 10 pages in, so I can't tell you very much. But (laughs) an adult human contains about 250 grams of salt. Fun fact. So we could fill up like three or four salt shakers with just a human size, well, a human's (laughs) amount of salt. (laughs) That's kind of cool. Is that mostly in blood or is it like in each cell? You know, I I really couldn't tell you. Later in the book, Will. She says she hasn't gotten that. I'll I'll tell you once I get another 30 or so pages in. I actually read the book and I have a salt fact for you. Oh. Uh, And that is that... Uh, people think that the word salary came from the Roman Empire when soldiers were paid with a handful of salt because it was so valuable back then. Wow. No way. Yeah, way. Salt seems like a really inefficient currency. 
It's so easy to lose. You know, if you spill it, then what do you do? Well, that would be bad. But imagine if you were like an explorer in the the 1500s and you had to travel for years. The only way to keep food from spoiling was to salt it. So salt was so valuable. I mean, luckily you could get it from the ocean, not too hard, but you know, it's, it's still really valuable. That's true. It's a much more useful form of currency in the case of inflation. (laughs) <laughs> okay <laughs> okay so I mean, you can just pump salt out of the ocean and that's okay well unless the oceans inflate no nobody's got it <clears throat> okay so Molina how was table salt on Europa actually detected and what does it mean does it mean that if we were to ever move to Europa ourselves, we could potentially leave our seasoning at home? <laughs> it appears to mean that, you know, if there's that much salt. First of all, I think that table salt is the cheat code of all cooking. It's the magic spice that elevates all foods to a new level. I digress. Um, so we'll take it back to the 70s, though, for the actual story of why there's so much hype around Europa, why this is such an interesting problem. And so when Voyager, the spacecraft that is now on its way out of slash out of the solar system, depending on how you define it. It's out. It's out? Okay. (laughs) Well, so when Voyager did pass by Europa back in 1979, it observed this really fascinating surface that shows all these long kind of crisscrossy cracks and ridges all over the planet or all over the moon, sorry. Um, and there were very few craters, so it looked like the moon was very geologically young and perhaps even tectonically active. It looked like this activity might be related to an ocean that is lying underneath a global water ice shell. And so that would be sort of why the surface looks so young, it's sort of being continually replenished. And so that's really cool. That's making this one of the potential sites to look for life elsewhere in the solar system, if there might be this under ground under ice shell ocean it's a very exciting possibility and the uh, upcoming europa clipper mission that's going to launch in 2024 is going to be responsible for investigating a lot of these questions Um, it's it's a really cool mission and it's uh, also a very challenging one because to get to europa the spacecraft has to stay in the high radiation zone of jupiter's uh, magnetospheric system, which is an interesting topic we could discuss at some future date, but it means that it can't like actually get that close to Europa at one time. It's got to do these these flybys. But anyhow, uh, I assume we don't know very much about this possible former ocean on Europa. Could it have been like our ocean? Yeah, I mean, we don't really know, right? Because we haven't had a dedicated mission to study Europa, and it seems like most of the best data that we have is from quite a long time ago right um so like we don't know what that subsurface ocean would be made of and so that would have a really big impact on life and it's really hard to directly study even if you have a probe there because it's not on the surface of the moon it's under this shell right so we have to use clues from the chemistry of the surface of the moon in order to learn more about what lies below okay so our listeners will remember, I think it was episode two, where we interviewed Raluca Rufu, and we learned that planets and their surfaces, and potentially moons as well, might not be chemically homogenous, right? Their mm-hmm. surfaces might change composition vastly from place to place. Right. So what part of the surface would you want to study? Do you just have to look at all of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So previous spectra that 
I don't think did a great job of resolving the actual disk of Europa. Um, show that the surface was made up of mostly water, ice, sulfuric acid, and sulfate salts. And this sort of makes sense because Europa is relatively close to Io, which is constantly spewing sulfur ions into space uh, because it has all these volcanic eruptions constantly happening. And it has no atmosphere to trap the sulfur. Right. So it gets, it gets spit out, and then the radiation environment bouncing sunlight off of Jupiter ionizes the sulfur, and then you have sulfur ions orbiting around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that that's sort of what it looked like Europa was made of, but more recent ground-based observations show, again, as you might expect, that Europa's surface actually isn't uniform, and it's not that simple. Did I or did I not call it? <laughs> you did <laughs> Thank call you, it. <laughs> <laughs> so, in particular, there's this part of Europa's surface called the Chaos Region, and it's very geologically young, and it shows signs of being a site for subsurface upwelling or melt-through. And so it's also shielded from the sulfur that's being spewed onto Europa by Io, and so it's potentially a little bit more pristine than other parts of Europa might be. And so ground-based infrared observations have suggested a chlorine-dominated composition for specifically the chaos terrains. It sounds like there's actually a lot going on, but that there's a lot still up in the air and not totally understood about what Europa's surface, much less the ocean underneath, is made of, right? Mm -hmm. So how do the authors try to learn more? Right, so previous observations were in the infrared, but chlorides actually don't produce a lot of prominent features there. Uh, they're a lot clearer in visible wavelengths. So based on lab experiments, there should be a broad absorption feature at 460 nanometers and another weaker one at 720 nanometers if the chaos terrain really is made of salt. And here again, we mean NaCl, table salt. And the big question, did they find the dips? They did. So their spectra are from the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrographs, DIS, on the Hubble Space Telescope. And they found the 460 nanometer absorption feature really nicely. Uh, although they didn't get a significant detection of the weaker feature, they argue that lab chemistry studies predict those features at much higher fluxes than Europa actually experiences. And so they're saying maybe since Europa experiences a lower level of radiation, the weaker feature is weak enough that it just gets washed out. Because Europa's in the outer solar system, there's not that much yes, sunlight there? Yeah. I see. So how do they interpret this finding? Uh, well, it's telling us a little bit about what's happening inside of Europa and maybe how it's evolved over time. Again, it's kind of hard to say a lot because we haven't been able to observe the subsurface ocean directly. But, you know, Earth has a salt-rich ocean, and Enceladus's plumes have suggested a salt-rich ocean as well, with a hydrothermally active seafloor. So this sort of looks like it's in line with that idea that maybe Europa also has some sort of salty ocean underneath it. We can't really say for sure, but it's a piece of evidence sort of along those lines. It's a very cool finding. Yeah. I think really the title of this astrobite does a great job getting excited about <laughs> this finding. Yeah. Finding salt on a, on a moon is pretty cool. Yeah. And salt is very valuable on Earth. So, you know, it's, I guess, if we ever went to Europa, then we wouldn't have to bring salt. And that's important because you need it to live. It'd be a delicious yep. journey. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Now, Alex, you took us only hundreds of parsecs away to do your chemistry. 
Well, we're uh, social distancing, Will, so I had to go <laughs> so far away, but we're also quarantining, so I had to be uh, pretty close in. That's, that's very responsible of you. Thank you. And Milena, you brought us much closer, only as far as Jupiter, for your chemistry. And yeah. now I'm going to talk about the chemistry of exoplanets, but I'm going to take us only as far as the lab. The lab. <laughs> the chemistry lab, I'm assuming you mean. That's exactly it. This astrobite is called Hazy Experiments in Exoplanet Atmospheres, written by Jessica Roberts about a paper by Horst and others, submitted to Nature in 2018 and is not yet published. Now, when they say hazy, I'm assuming that doesn't refer to their understanding of the experiments. <laughs> <laughs> my, my understanding, Will, is that haze corresponds to dust, right? It, it is, but it's a little complicated because there are a few terms that get mixed around. Aerosols, haze, clouds, dust... They're all kind of thrown in there. So let's just, you know, clear some of this up. An aerosol is actually a shortening of the word arrow solution. So any particle suspended in gas is an aerosol. So that's a general term. Okay, so you're saying that solids and liquids can both be aerosols, and what makes them aerosols is just that they're suspended? Exactly. Okay, cool. I'm super excited for this astrobite. Because Titan, also crazy and hazy. Yeah. Crazy yeah, and bad. This is very applicable to Titan. <laughs> so now the other terms. Clouds are aerosols caused by condensation, right? So we're familiar with the water clouds on Earth, and you have a lot of water vapor in the air, and the temperature, when it drops just a little bit, that can condense out and form clouds. And then Jupiter and Saturn have ammonia clouds. Uranus and Neptune have methane clouds. I could go on, but I won't. Um, and then haze is a solid particle that ends up suspended in a gas, an aerosol, but it's caused by photochemistry. Photochemistry, that's like photojournalism for chemists, right? Where you take pictures of molecules? Yeah, you got to get them in the, in the right <laughs> position so you can get that money shot. It's all about the light. <laughs> okay, so in all seriousness, Will, how does photochemistry work? Photochemistry is a chemical reaction that is instigated by light and... UV light is strong enough to ionize, and visible and infrared light is strong enough to break apart molecules. And so when these things happen, a particle gets ionized, it loses an electron, or a complex molecule gets broken up, they reform and they start these chains of chemistry. This is how ozone gets created on Earth, which is so important, but it's also really easy to destroy ozone, as, as we know, and um, the reactions are very sensitive. Um, this is what happens on Titan. Titan has a lot of methane, that's CH4, and what happens when the UV light from the sun hits it is that it breaks it apart and it reforms into hydrocarbons, these long chains that are actually related to the types that we can use as fuel on Earth. Right, so the environments of all these different planets, and in the case of Titan, moons, um, they're, they're all very different from what we see on Earth. So how do we actually recreate these environments in the lab? What are they actually doing in these experiments? Great question. They use a really cool device called the Planetary Haze Research Chamber. It's called the Phaser Chamber, which is a, a crazy <laughs> acronym. And it's located at Johns Hopkins <laughs> University. Now, getting a, uh, a situation with the right amount of sunlight in a, in a lab setting is nearly impossible. So what they do is they use a high-voltage device, and it kind of simulates the energy you'd get from sunlight without the actual light. So they pump in some concoction of gas they want to test, let it go through the high voltage. It gets broken up. It gets all this chemical stuff, yada, yada, yada. And then some point later, <laughs> some chemi chemicals spit out, 
and they look at the spectra from those chemicals, and then they see uh, how much that matches what they find in the atmospheres of exoplanets. And then they have to adjust their input, run it through the phaser chamber again, and see what happens. Will, that experiment sounds incredibly complex and difficult to keep track of all the different molecules and spectra yes. they're getting out. They have to test so many possible spectra, and it could potentially take a long time to match that against their uh, predictions, right? Yeah, oh yeah. It, it takes three days for each chemical reaction to run. So wow. they have to pick something, run it through, see if it matches. If it doesn't match, they don't even know what's wrong. You know, they don't get a lot of data out of it. It's, it's forward modeling. It's very hard because you really don't know what the inputs are. You're just trying to match the output. So how do they decide what to test to begin with? We know so little about the constituents of different exoplanet atmospheres. How do they get any context and where to start? Yeah, it's true. So like a good modeler, they picked three model atmospheres <laughs> and they tested each of the three at three different temperatures, 300, 400, and 600 Kelvin. So actually there were nine. Okay, that makes sense because most of the exoplanets we know of are close to their host stars, so they'd be at pretty right. high temperatures. Um, so what were the three atmospheres then? Are they like based on the solar system or something else? Vaguely. Uh, one of them is like the giant planets, mostly hydrogen and helium. One was like Venus or Mars with mostly carbon dioxide, overwhelmingly carbon dioxide. And the third was kind of just an oddball, mostly H2O, water. And we have a lot of water on Earth, but not in the atmosphere, not very much at all. So it's really kind of an unusual take there. So which was the winning atmosphere? I'm assuming they gave out medals because you have a first, second, and a third place. Yeah, but everyone's a winner in chemistry. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> the the winner was the the winner was the weird one with with a lot of water, and it actually produced about as much haze as you see on Titan. Wow, that's super cool. So, how do they tie that into exoplanet atmospheres? Does that mean that exoplanets have lots of water? Maybe. Well, so I kind of did this astrobite in reverse. I explained the solution and the technique without telling you what the problem is they're trying to solve. When we look at spectra of exoplanets, a lot of the times we get flat spectra, which means there's no real features in it. And that means that there's a lot of haze that blocks the light from getting deeper into the atmosphere where we would learn about the actual chemistry. And so it's almost impossible to learn anything because you don't have any real features. So what they were doing in the lab is they were trying to see what atmospheric conditions would create such intense haze. And then that intense haze would produce the spectra that are flat. And then you could kind of indirectly infer what the atmosphere is like. So to the question, are exoplanets potentially composed of lots of water? Your answer is maybe. Yeah, I, they don't really go as far as to say anything, anything specific. The problem is these, these spectra are usually not that high resolution because it's really hard. And the other challenge is there are just so many possibilities that can produce haze, right? They tested three things in three temperatures. Right. They could test a thousand in a thousand temperatures and come up with a thousand ways to produce haze. So it's a great, it's a great start. It's a nice effort, but I think it's going to take a lot more uh, information about exoplanet atmospheres before we can really dump into this fully. Fair enough. Well, with that, let's delve into our one sentence summaries and let's start off with you, Will. Sure. Using spectra is our window into the atmospheres of exoplanets, but untangling the haze in those spectra may require taking some funky gases and sticking them into a crazy contraption called phaser <laughs> at Johns Hopkins University.
<laughs> Melina? Well, the title beat me to it, but salt has been found on Europa, and it's taking us one step closer to understanding what Europa's underground ocean is made of, one of the big question marks in the search for extraterrestrial life in the solar system. And Alex, what's yours? Complex organic molecules seem to precede stars and planets by hundreds of thousands of years, but exactly how they got from a molecular cloud to a planet to a bootlegger's bottle is beyond (laughs) us. (laughs) How about you, Will? How about me what? <laughs> How about you jump into the discussion for us? <laughs> well, um, I, I would say that we're all talking about so much spectroscopy. And we talk about it like it's this great miracle. It just gives us information about chemistry. But it's really hard. And it requires a lot of fine tuning and special instruments and it took a long time to get it reliable one could even argue that it's still not at the point that we need it to be at to really study exoplanet spectra in great detail or i guess that's just what's on my mind because it's what you just talked about and also because exoplanets but (laughs) i mean there are so many advances still yet to be made it's a really difficult field to be working in it's like it you have to deal with a lot of telurics from the earth and all kinds of crazy stuff before you can actually pull out information. I also think that aside from chemistry, spectroscopy in and of itself is amazing. I had a mm-hmm. professor in, in grad school last year who continually said that all of astronomy is spectroscopy. And he was exaggerating, of course, but there's so mm-hmm. much that we get from spectra. I mean, I study supernovae and supernova classes determined by its spectra and what's happening. We get redshift from spectra. All of these things we get from the lines, right. even stellar classification and evolution we get from spectra. So aside from chemical composition studies entirely, so much of what we know about the universe is based on looking at spectra of objects. That's very true. Very true. I think it's also interesting. I looked this up and the solar spectrum was first observed in 1802. I typically think of astrochemistry as a fairly novel field, like the merging of chemical studies with the study of the cosmos around us. Why is that the case? Why did it take so long for the studies to catch up? I would imagine it's because it's so hard to capture light from faraway objects. I mean, the sun is one thing. It's, you know, you can... You can't even really point a spectrograph at the sun in many cases because it'll just saturate immediately. But you can look at asteroids in the solar system that are reflecting sunlight and you can learn about the spectrum of the sun in a lot of ways. But these faraway stars and galaxies, it's actually pretty crazy that we can figure out their compositions at all. That's true. Absolutely. You have to have a really good telescope in the first place to put a spectrograph on it if you want to have any sort of reasonable resolution. Otherwise, you don't know what you're even seeing. So it it took a long time to get uh, those sorts of instruments even good enough. And and Milena, as you alluded to, we have all sorts of, of confusion due to our own atmosphere and characterizing the spectra you'd get from just looking through the Earth's atmosphere at a blank screen took a really long time. And it's still right. very hard. So that makes it more challenging. And now with... With, with the Hubble Space Telescope and, and others in, you know, in space, we don't have that problem anymore, but it, it's still a complicated issue for ground-based right. telescopes. I think we also 
wouldn't have necessarily known how to interpret all of the spectra very early on. I know even now a lot of line lists are not entirely accurate, and so if you really want to figure out what all of those features correspond to, you need to do often a lot of lab experiments, and that's, I imagine, not something that had been done very extensively in the early 1800s. Oh, well, that reminds me. Another another issue is this is all quantum mechanics, mm, yeah. right? Mm. You have to have a good working theory of atomic transitions, molecular transitions, and what that will do to a absorption or emission line. And I don't think that was fleshed out well enough until the middle 20th century, mm. um, maybe early 20th century. And also, you know, when you're doing a spectroscopy, you have to ask complicated questions about like the broadening of a line due to effects at where the uh, emission is coming from. Some of that is just just occurs due to quantum mechanics. Some of it tells you something about the source. And you ha how do you compare a low-resolution spectra to a high-resolution spectra? There are ways to do it. It's hard. So I think the, the mechanics of it really are, are challenging. That's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Chemistry is beautiful. Chemistry is beautifully complex. <laughs> and it's exciting that there are so many active subfields, active areas of research in astrochemistry going on right now to learn more about everything around us. It is a very exciting field. And with that, we'll conclude episode 13 of Astro Soundbites, My Chemical Astromance. If you want to read the three astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, you can check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on SoundCloud. We should also mention that chembytes.org is a sister site of Astrobytes that has lots of cool stuff about chemistry if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> Yay, chemistry. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Bye.